Daniel, it's good to have you back. Even if the leaves here aren't as beautiful as the leaves where you were. But sweater weather, sweater weather is coming. That's what I was going to tell you this morning. And then after I got to church, it came. So it's here. If you didn't wear your sweater, it's all right. 1994, uh, there was a longtime prominent social, we would use the term influencer, who, uh, whose team of ad advisors around him really urged and pushed him to make a, a pretty dramatic uh, proclamation that has had lasting impact, certainly, on those of my generation ever since. The proclamation went something like this, Dear Darla, I hate your stinking guts. You make me vomit. You're like scum between my toes. Love, Alfalfa. 1994 was a remake of The Little Rascals, and that was the letter that Alfalfa was pressured by the boys around him in the He-Man Woman Haters Club to write to break up with Darla. Now you say, why do I use that this morning? Well, really, because there's no uh, other way I could think of to be slightly lighthearted when we're going to walk through a passage talking about vomit. Because that's where we come to today in Revelation. We come to a passage where out of all the churches we see what may be some of the strongest, most catching language of condemnation that Jesus gives to any one of the churches, and at the same time, one of the most gracious and kind and loving offers that you and I could ever see. So if you will, turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 3. We come to the final of the seven ten churches, the church in Laodicea. Now here's what you need to understand about Laodicea this morning, church family. Uh, Laodicea, probably of all the cities, as I've studied through these the last 10 weeks, of all the cities, Laodicea may be the one that's the easiest for us to, uh, to fathom. And here's why. Uh, Laodicea was uh, the most prominent and wealthy city in the, in the Lycus Valley. It was fixed on the intersection of the major east-west and north-south trade routes. These highways were the primary sources of trade and what it created right there at the intersection which, uh, upon which Laodicea set, it created a city with a thriving banking industry. Uh, they, they were a city of great wealth. They even minted their own coins. Uh, it created an opportunity for not, not just to be a thriving banking city, but they were a thriving manufacturing city. Uh, they manufactured all kinds of, of textiles and clothes, and, and obviously they were prominent because at the crossroads, trade came to them and it was easy to ship their goods out. Not only that, but they were a prominent medical city. Some of the greatest medical schools of the ancient world set in Laodicea, known for, uh, for, for their, their, their medical advances in treating issues, especially with eyes and ears. Now, I give you all that to say, it's easy to imagine this city. It's Dallas-Fort Worth. And you laugh, but Dallas-Fort Worth sits on the intersection of two of the major east-west trade highways, I-20 and I-30, and two of the major uh, north-south tra uh, uh, trade highways, I-45 and I-35. It's got prominent medical schools that train uh, doctors and surgeons and, and all over uh, the nation. It's got a prominent manufacturing industry and a thriving economy with plenty of wealth. Laodicea, in many ways for us, is what we think of in Dallas-Fort Worth. 
And in this city, uh, there's a church. And to this church, here's what Jesus says. Look with me, Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning, uh, the beginning or the originator, the source, the ruler of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. Oh, how I wish, how I long with deep affection that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am preparing to vomit you out of my mouth. Now stop for a moment. Jesus says to this church, he identifies himself and he says, this is who's talking to you, church. I am the amen. I am the final word of God. I am the fulfillment of all of God's promises. All of God's promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus, according to 1 Corinthians. Uh, the amen speaks of finality, firmness, credibility. Then he says, I am the faithful and true witness. I am reliable. I am trustworthy. I am genuine. I am the reliable, trustworthy, genuine revelation of God to man. Not only that, but some of your Bibles will say, I am the ruler of God's creation. Some will say the origin or source. It's a unique little Greek word that carries both connotations. The idea is that all of creation exists because Jesus made it. Jesus is the source, the author, the creator. And because he's the source and the author and creator, he is by default the ruler. So here's, here's what all this adds up to. Jesus says, church, this is who I am speaking to you. I am the final revelation of God. What I say is trustworthy and true. I am the real deal. I am the source of your existence and I am the rightful ruler over you. You need to understand that the, that the one who is speaking, speaking to you, what I say is the final and authoritative verdict. What I say can absolutely be counted on. My, my judgment is right and my promise and offer is good. And on this basis, here's what I'm telling you, church. I know your deeds. I see your life. I see the way you live. I, I, I hear your worship. I am fully aware of your life as a church. And here's what I find. Here's my, here's my verdict. You're neither hot nor cold. You're lukewarm. I wish you were hot or cold. Now, uh, oftentimes we have taken this passage and, and you may have heard it something like this because this is how we think of hot and cold and lukewarm very much in, in our society. Well, God, Jesus is just saying, I, I wish you were either on fire in love with me or you were just cold with hatred for me, but you're just straddling the fence. So, so both ways. Can I just tell you that is not what Jesus is saying. Understand, when in the Bible does God ever say, I wish you hated my guts? That doesn't logically make sense with anything else in the Bible. It just makes sense in terms of how we think of lukewarmness. No, here's what he is saying. You see, for all of the grandeur and greatness of Laodicea, Laodicea had a critical problem, especially for ancient cities. It had no permanent or stable supply of good drinking water. Now, to the north, Several miles to the north was the city of Hierapolis. Hierapolis set on uh, a, a bed of hot mineral springs that were known to be good and healing to the body. In fact, you can go there today and you will see, uh, it, it will look like 
snow-covered mountains or, or snowy-looking clouds from a distance because the mineral deposits in these hot springs are still there. They're a major tourist attraction. So the north, you've got this hot water that is good for, for healing purposes. To the south in the city of Colossae, get the letter to the Colossian church from, uh, the city of Colossae was some 8,000 feet above sea level in and, and the mountains, and, and there they had fresh mountain spring water that was refreshing and, and good to drink. It was pure. It was delicious. Both of these cities to the north and south had different kinds of water, but water that was effective and useful for something for healing, for refreshment. And this, in Laodicea, having no source, what they did is they had to pipe in the water into their city. Now here's what would happen as they piped in the water. If the water was hot when it left Hierapolis, by the time it arrived in Laodicea, it was lukewarm. If the water was cold and refreshing when it left Colossae, by the time it got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. And because the water had such high mineral content, and they've discovered in those pipes just the buildup of the minerals, by the time the water got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm and had a disgusting taste that would make you want to spit it out of your mouth. So what Jesus is saying would have been piercing to the church in Laodicea because when he says, I wish you were either hot or cold, but you are lukewarm, they would understand instantly. They were known as being a great and wealthy city whose water was disgusting, so you better bring your own. What he's saying is when he says, I wish you were hot or cold, I wish you were effective and useful for something but you're ineffective and useless as a church. You're not hot. You're not reflective of the, the living water that I've put in you. You're not hot and, and like the hot water of Hierapolis, able to bring healing. You're not cold and refreshing. You, you are a poor reflection of the transforming, life-giving power of the gospel. That is your present state, Laodicea. And, and because you are ineffective because you, you are useless, because you are such a poor reflection of the gospel. It, it is a nauseous taste to the mouth of Christ. And I want to puke you out. And I'm not trying to be gross with using vomit and puke. Some of your Bibles will, will just translate it spit on because it wants to be more palatable. The true sense of that Greek word is not to just casually spit something to the side. It is to forcefully vomit something out of your mouth. It is strong language. Wow, what, what, what a strong condemnation of this church. There's no positive. It's just you're lukewarm and you're discussing, well, why? How, how, does, how does a church, because here's what Jesus says, church, you've become useless, ineffective. How does a church get there? Why are they lukewarm? Well, look with me. He says, because you are presently and continuously saying, I am rich, and I have made myself wealthy, and I have need of nothing, but you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, and blind, and naked. And I counsel you, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so you may be rich, and white garments so you may clothe yourself, that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed, and eye ointment to smear in your eyes so you may 
see. So here's what he says. He says, church in Laodicea, you've come to a point where you are ineffective and useless, where, where the, the, your taste as a church is such a poor reflection of the gospel that, that it, is, it is disgusting to the taste of God. He says, you've arrived at this point because you are, one, you've self-deceived yourself. Now, a few weeks back, we saw the church in Sardis who Jesus called them a dead church. They, they, were, they were on life support, but they had a reputation for being alive. If, if Sardis's trouble was they, they bought their press, they bought into what other people said about them, here in Laodicea, the problem is not them believing what other people say about them, it's what they believe about their self. They've set up their own standard of judgment to judge whether or not they are a healthy, thriving congregation of believers. And their judgment is poorly miscalculated. They look at themselves and say, man, we are rich. We, we, have, we have pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps. We have, we have created, we are really a great and thriving church. And Jesus, in the ultimate of irony, said, you are the exact opposite of what you think you are. You think you're rich, you think you're wealthy. In fact, you are, you are wretched, a word that speaks to ravaged lands and devastated countrysides. You are miserable. You are someone who should be an object of extreme pity from other people because of how miserable your experience of life is. You are poor, not just poor, but dirt poor, which would have been an irony to a city that was as wealthy as Laodicea. Laodicea was so wealthy this really is shocking. It doesn't matter what, what generation and era of history, this is amazing. 30 years prior to this letter, Laodicea was, was flattened by an earthquake. They were so wealthy as a city that they rejected all Roman funds and they rebuilt the city entirely from their own wealth. Let me put that in today's terms. Take a city in America that's devastated by a hurricane and have that city look at the federal government and say, nope, we don't want a drop of your money, government. We got enough to fix it all on our own. That's what Laodicea did. They were proud of the fact. This, this is who they were culturally. And Jesus says, you're not wealthy. You're, you're poor. You're not only just poor, you're dirt poor. You're blind. You who pride yourself on, there was an ointment that came out of the medical schools of Laodicea that was world known for fixing eye problems. He said, you who are known for your eye ointment, you're blind. You can't see anything clearly. Not only that, he says, you're naked. And in the ancient world, to be, to be naked was to be in a place of humiliation, despair, of hopelessness, of hitting rock bottom. And it would have been an irony to a church in Laodicea where the primary, the top manufacture good of Laodicea came from the goat skins in the hills around them, which were a fine, soft, black wool. He says, you who, are, who, who have prided from a city renowned for its wealth, for its healing capabilities, for its manufacturing clothes, you are the opposite of everything you think you are. You are self-deceived. Not only that, you're proud. Look at me, I'm rich. There's a pride that drives you. Not only that, but that word, we have become wealthy, it, it literally means we have made ourselves wealthy by our own effort. You're self-sufficient. You believe you have need of nothing. And in fact, what I am telling you, the reason you have become useless, the reason you are lukewarm is because you are self-deceived 
in your pride and your self-sufficiency. And here's what I'm advising you to do. Rather than continuing in your self-deception, you need to wake up and hear what I'm saying. You need to see the truth. Rather than continuing to, to in your pride and self-sufficiency, purchase from your own hand what you can do, you need to buy from me gold refined by fire. What is that language? You need to buy from me heavenly treasure, not worldly treasure. But how does that heavenly treasure come? It comes as God's people walk by faith, which First Peter tells us is refined by fire so that in being purified, it would result in reward and glory at Christ's return. To buy gold refined by fire is to walk with Jesus in a fully God-dependent, Jesus-abiding, Spirit-driven faith that undergoes and submits to whatever trial and refinement God causes or allows. To buy, he says, buy from me white garments. Well, we know in Revelation, white garments, they're symbolic for the righteousness of Christ. He says, stop living on the basis of your own works, of your own abilities, and start living on the basis of my work, my person, who I am, the righteousness that you have in me by grace through faith. He says, buy from me I ointment to see. Stop living by your own judgment, but live by the judgment that comes only from Christ. Now, here's what's interesting, church family. We've seen churches that struggle with doctrinal error, that struggle with moral error. We've seen them all throughout these seven churches. Nothing is made mention here with Laodicea of doctrinal or moral heresy. Undoubtedly, the same exact temptations and pressures in society were there in their church. There's nothing said. In fact, I suspect, and, I, and I'll own, this is my own suspicion from study, I suspect that if we walked into the Laodicean church, this would look like a church that, that preached truth, that had some ministry going. It would not look like a church that was just, just self-indulgent in the ways that we might jump to. I think the Laodiceans would be shocked by Christ's judgment. that everything they were doing was built entirely upon what they could do for God and not because they were actually walking with Jesus. So Jesus says, you purchase these things from me. And then this is what He says. He makes clear to them, to the church that He wants to vomit. Listen to what He says, those whom I love. I reprove and discipline those whom, on one hand, how alarming, it's even alarming as I preach it this morning to say, here's a church whose taste to God is so disgusting, he wants to vomit them. That is harsh. And to the same people, Jesus says, and the reason I am telling this to you, the reason I am exposing your guilt, the reason I am calling you to return is because I love you. It's not that I'm insecure and you've just made me all mad. It's not that I'm flying off the handle in anger. It's not that, it's that I love you. You're mine. I bought you at a price. I love you and I am watching you walk in a way that is absolutely useless. 
It is a poor reflection of the gospel and you who think you are living life large, you, you are in danger of, of living in such a poor and wretched state and, and because I love you, I am coming forward to wake you up, to bring it to your intention. I love you is what he says. I love, and those whom I love, I reprove, I expose, uh, I, I show the proof of the error of their ways, I discipline, I both correct and instruct. Therefore, what should you do? Be zealous. Be zealous. Quite literally, be intensely serious about me. Be fervent, be zealous and repent. Acknowledge that where you're at is wrong and turn acknowledging that I am right. And this is what he says, behold, I have taken my stand at the door and I am knocking. And if anyone, now catch that, if anyone, not if all of you, if any one of you, if any single one of you would to hear my voice and would open the door, here's what I wanna do, my aim is not to my name is not to come and knock on your door and tell you how awful you are. I, I love you, I am reproving you, you are in the wrong, I am, I am being frank and candid with you. And I am knocking at the door, and if in zealousness and repentance you will come and open that door, he says, I will come in and I will dine with you. In the ancient oral, to dine with someone, that was what he, what he means is I will come in and I will fellowship and commune with you in the most intimate of ways as friends and family. He says, what I want, I, the reason I am calling you out is I love you and what I want to do, I, I'm not done with you. Fr from your vantage point, you've made yourself useless, but I, you're not useless to me. I'm not done with you. Instead, I'm knocking at the door. I am still knocking at the door and I want to come in and, and fellowship and commune and have a true life-giving relationship with you, the one that I died to have with you. Because remember, he's writing to his church. He's not writing to lost people. He's writing to people who've been saved by grace through faith. So I want to come in, this, to come in and fellowship and know you. And church family, we need to understand today the intense danger of this passage. That it is possible as a church it is possible as a church to deceive ourselves into thinking we are something great when in fact we are naked, blind, and poor because we are walking in our own pride and self-sufficiency. And not only is it possible for a church to walk this way, but if a church walks this way, it's only because first, the people of the church have begun to walk that way as individuals in their relationship with the Lord. And so if we understand that and we understand what Jesus says, that here is the reality that this can happen, we have to respond, church, and we respond in this way. One, we have to heed the reality of Jesus' evaluation. We need to understand today, church family, that we aren't the judge of ourselves. Jesus is our judge. Jesus is the one who evaluates us. Our opinion of how well we're doing with Christ in our own life individually or how well we're doing with Christ as a church, our opinion is not what matters. It's his opinion. It's his evaluation that matters. And we need to heed his evaluation that it is possible to whether as a church or as an individual to, to be so self-deceived by my pride and self-sufficiency that, that I am walking in a way that is such a poor reflection of Christ and the gospel that I'm effectively useless in my life. 
And again, when I say useless, I don't mean worthless. There's not one of us in here that are ever worthless. The cross tells us we're always worth a price greater than we could ever dream. What I mean is, as a child of God, I can live in such a way where the, the good works that, I, that were created in Christ Jesus for me to live out of my salvation, where I'm unable to do it. Where in my pride, I find the enemy of humility. Where in my self-sufficiency, the opponent of faith. Where in self-deception, the antagonist of clarity. So how, can we, how do we do this? How is it possible, church family, that we as a church or individuals could live in such a way that we are self-deceived by pride and self-sufficiency? Let me just give you, let me just give you some thoughts. We do this when we follow Jesus entirely in our own strength rather than by His grace. What does that look like? Well, it, it could be only living life on the basis of what we perceive we possess the ability to do. As a church, well, what do we have the ability to do? Well, we can do this thing and this thing, but man, we don't have enough money for this. We don't have enough people for that. We don't have enough training for that. We can do these things. Well, okay, we'll just do these things. Never mind Jesus saying, hey, come follow me. I didn't ask you to follow me on the basis of what you can do. I asked you to follow me on the faith on the basis of what I can do in and through you. We do it as individuals. God, here's the things, God, I think I can do for you. And so I'll do these things. But don't ask me to do any of these things. I can't do those things. And God goes, child, I didn't ask you what you can do for me. I'm telling you what I can do in you and through you. We do it when we walk on the basis of our own strength. That can also look like being driven. Uh, when we look at God and say, God, I only do these things, it may not be pride in the way that we think of it. It can be driven just as much by ambition. God, I'm going to do this for you. And God said, child, I, don't, I, I didn't make you to do that for me. It can be driven by fear. God, I could never do, I, I can only do these things because I could just never do this. And he says, child, I didn't give you a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. We can do it driven by ambition or fear. We do it when we're more focused on our will and preferences than worshiping Him and following Him. How many churches have come together and they've said, okay, here's how we're going to reach people for Jesus. Here, we're we're going to do this event. We've got this program. We've got this thing. Oh, and Jesus, please bless all our plans for you. Rather than going, Lord, what does your word tell us we have to be about And then as we seek to be about what your word tells us to be about, how are you leading and directing and stirring us? Maybe you're leading us to go back to something we did 20 years ago. Maybe you're leading us to do something as a church we've never done before. And the only way we'll be able to do it is if you provide and show up. The only way to do it is to trust you and walk by faith. That ought to be the way we walk. We do it when we come to church and we let our preferences and styles of worship, create the church to be a country club for for us rather than a place where Jesus is present and worshiped through submission. We we do it when we assert our standards of evaluation for His conviction. It doesn't matter what the Spirit's convicting me of. If I don't want to agree with it, then I'm just going to keep going. We do it when we think we're something extra special to God and needed by God. If every church was just like us, this world would be great. You know, I don't know what God would do if he didn't have First Baptist standing in the gap. Let's be clear. Here's the amazing thing about God, church family. God needs not a one of us. 
God doesn't need First Baptist Pflugerville to reach Pflugerville. He can open the mouth of donkeys to do that. But he wants to use First Baptist Pflugerville to reach Pflugerville and beyond. And we've got to have enough humility to realize we are special to God. All right, Jesus didn't die on the cross to save the whales. He died on the cross to redeem men and women made in his image. We are special to God. But none of us are the extra special to God. If everybody would just be a Christian like I'm a Christian, this church would be a better place. We need to be careful. All of these are ways. When we live unaware of our need for him by not praying, not abiding, not meditating, when we live independent from him, driven by ambition or fear, this is what it looks like. It looks like a church or a person who lives with Jesus on the outside rather than filling the life of the home and the church. We do it when there is a pride in who we are rather than whose we are. We do it when there is pride in what we accomplish and do rather than in the reality of our names being written in his book of life by his grace. We do it when we are more in awe of what we've accomplished in our perception for God than what he's already accomplished on the cross through Jesus Christ. All of these are ways we can deceive ourselves in living in pride and self-sufficiency, both as a church and as individuals. So if this is how, if we've got to be aware of this reality, once we're aware of the reality, we've got to respond. Well, how do we respond? Well, he tells us in the passage, he says, be zealous, be zealous, present tense. Zealousness ought to always mark our life. And I love the way it was, it was defined in one definition. Zealousness simply means taking him seriously at his word. Church family, we can never take our relationship with Jesus Christ too serious. You can never trust him at his word too seriously. Maybe too seriously for some people around you, but not too seriously in reality. We have to be zealous, and what do we do in our zealousness? Well, he tells us, what's the solution? How do I make sure I don't walk in the self-deception of, of pride and self-sufficiency? How do I do it? Well, I purchase things from him. Well, how do we purchase? Well, how'd you get salvation? By grace through faith. Well, once you have that salvation, how do you live it out? By grace through faith. God's grace, he gives it. How is that grace enacted in my life? By walking in faith. The cost is always the same. We must walk by faith in Jesus Christ. We must walk, and what's another way to say faith in Jesus Christ? Fully dependent upon him, which is the opposite of depending upon myself. He says we purchase gold refined by fire. Listen, we mentioned what this is. This, this is when I seek to walk with him by faith no matter how he would try and test my faith. That in walking with him by tried and tested faith, it would result in reward at his return. Glory and honor and praise. If I'm gonna buy from him gold tested by fire church family, what it's gonna mean is today I have to make a choice to relate and walk with Jesus Christ for who he is at his word, which is gonna mean he's gonna take me through seasons of testing where I will feel unbelievably weak and I will recognize that I am completely not in control. If we're gonna buy from him gold tested and refined by fire, it's gonna mean we have to put our focus and our energy in walking with him by faith, who he is, at his word, 
which is going to guarantee us he's going to refine and test our faith through trials and circumstances. And we can't back down. It says we're going to buy from him white garments to wear. It means we live by his righteousness and not our own. It means, it means we don't relate to God on the basis of our performance. Wow, God is really proud of us as a church because look at all the stuff we're doing for him. God's proud of us as a church because we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ who lived the life we failed to live and died the death we deserved to die and rose from the grave doing what we couldn't do for ourselves. It's not just our church. God's really proud of me. I, I, I am right now on a, on a 161-day quiet time streak. I'm coming up. I've already broken Joe DiMaggio's hit record. I'm coming up on the next one. Listen, we ought to be in the Word. It ought to be a daily drive to be in the Word. That's wonderful. We'd certainly seek. But I don't relate to Jesus on the basis of my performance. The only way to relate to Jesus is on the basis of His performance. It's to take more delight and awe, not from what I perceive myself doing for Jesus, but it is to be in awe of, of what He's done on my behalf daily. It is to learn to live and to walk and to relate to him, not on the basis of my works, but on the basis of his righteousness. And I will tell you, church family, if you're a child of God and you're wired to be real perfectionistic, you're gonna struggle with it. I do. It's a daily choice to have to purchase white garment. And what we mean by purchase is not getting something we don't have. What we mean is living out what God has already given us. You don't buy from Christ Christ's righteousness. He purchased it for you. Instead, you abide in Him by faith and live out of His righteousness. It means we, we, we look to Him for how to see. What, what, what does it mean to purchase from Him uh, eye ointment so we see clearly? It means we walk in the Spirit so we're sensitive to the Spirit's conviction when we're out of alignment, when we're dependent upon ourselves, It means we allow the Word of God to be what examines our life and not our opinions or culture's opinions. It means we allow Jesus to open our eyes and we submit to His evaluation. We embrace His standard. We zealously seek to walk by faith, though refined by fire. We zealously seek to walk in and out of His righteousness. We zealously seek to be sensitive to the Spirit, to allow Him to open our eyes, and we do all of this for fellowship and communion. He says, I stand at the door and knock. Realize, we zealously follow after Christ, a Jesus who wants, who wants not just to be associated with us, He wants to come in, to sit down to dine, to fellowship, to commune, for there to be a real, rich, life-giving relationship. His desire is to be fully and completely in fellowship on the inside of our lives, both individually and as a church. Here's the sad reality in Laodicea church family. This was a church that gathered, they sang songs of praise, they, they heard the word preached, and the whole time Jesus was on the outside. You can read the writings of A.W. Tozer. He talks about this, that one of the marks of a New Testament church is a church where God is actually present. But what a lot of times we do in churches is we come in and go, man, we're going to have a great time of worship today. We've prepared a great oratory with the best skills of, of, of verbal communication. We've got the best musicians and songs. We've got this order. We're, we've got the best media technicians who will tweak the life. We've got everything, God. Here, here's, here's your honored box, God. Please sit there as we perform for you today. That's not church. 
God is not the honored guest who sits in the box, church family. He is the leader and receiver of our worship who is to fill this place as we worship the greatness and glory of him together in this place, and then we go out and live lives that do the same every moment of the day. We we seek zealously for his fellowship and communion. We be zealous, but here's the last thing. How do we respond? We respond in repentance. We repent of all pride and self-sufficiency and self-deception. If we find, if the Spirit goes, hey, my child, you really are walking. This is you. The Spirit of Laodicea is how you're walking. Then our response is to repent and say, God, you know what? You're right. You're right. I have been guilty of being proud of who I perceive myself to be and I am living out the Christian faith, completely relying on myself. I'm not actually relying on you, your righteousness, walking in you. I've resisted being tested and tried in my faith and instead going to those things that I perceive myself to be competent. You're right, God. I repent. And when we repent, understand who we're repenting to, church family. I mean, it just blows my mind. Unlike Alfalfa's letter to Darla, Jesus says, I want to vomit you, not because I hate you, not because you're scum to me. I want to vomit you because that's the real state of your spiritual life. I'm on the outside and you're doing all of it on your own. But I'm telling you this because I love you with a tender care and affection that you cannot possibly even imagine at this stage of Time, I love you. The one that we repent to is the one who loves us and shed his blood for us in whose heart there is a real affection for us. What a joy to repent to that one. What a joy to know that that if I've been living life pushing Jesus to the outside that I can turn when I hear his knock I can turn and say, Jesus, you're right, and I can run open to that door, and I can throw it open to find the one who loved, who loves me, and he will come in and embrace me, and we will sit down and dine and fellowship. What a joy. What a life. And church family, it's what we ought to be as a church family, and the only way we'll be this as a church family is if this is who we seek to be as the individuals who make up this church family. He writes and he says, he who overcomes, I will grant to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. To the one that does the hard work, to the one that submits, to the one that that honors me, the one who seeks to walk by faith, the one who lives in my righteousness, the one who accepts my judgment, the one who welcomes my fellowship, the one who repents when wrong, to the one who overcomes, you you, you will experience victory in a way you can't even imagine. And this is what he says, he who has an ear, hear what the Spirit is still saying to this day to the churches. Church family, there is always a danger for any one of us as an individual or for all of us as a congregation to be besieged by the Spirit of Laodicea. But the wonderful news is there's a solution for that. And that solution is instead of purchasing out of our own hand to walk in a tried and tested faith with Jesus in His righteousness at his evaluation, 
for the fellowship and communion that's only in him, all with the one who loves us. And so our response today should be one of worship, one of repentance, wherever we're at. What a joy, church family. The question today is not if God is present or if God is speaking. The question is, are we listening and will we open the door? Let's pray. Jesus, there is a real temptation to the spirit of Laodicea because there is a real temptation in the Christian life, Lord, to go, hey, I can't save myself. I understand that. Jesus has got to save me by grace through faith. But then once we're saved and we're in relationship with you, to believe the lie of the enemy that somehow living out that relationship with you is all about me and it's all going to be accomplished by me. When in reality, that relationship is not at all about me. It's all about you, and it will only be accomplished by you in me, the hope of glory. Lord, there's not one of us in this room, myself included, who is, who is greater than the temptation to fall into pride and self-sufficiency. So Jesus, as we worship and seek you today, may we be a church that you don't have to write this letter to. We want to be a church, Lord, where the door is wide open for you, where we as a church walk and live in the fellowship and communion of you at the table. So God, you deal with us how you want to deal with us. May you find our response pleasing and a joy to your name. If there's any in this room or watching online who do not know you, who would love to have, to have the God of the universe come into the, come into the dinner table of their heart and to fellowship and to know the warmth of your embrace and your love. If there's any that don't know you, Lord, may today be the day that they respond to your gospel. Jesus, it's to you we look, and in your name I pray. Amen.